This morning, we get to do what we get to do every single week, which is no small thing, but we get to open up our Bibles and expect to hear from God. So open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We'll be reading from verses 31 to 56. Se habla español, abran sus Biblias a el Evangelio según Marcos capítulo 6, versículos 31 a 56. If you're, if you're just now joining us for the, for the first time, or, or if it's been a while, we're several months now into the Gospel of Mark. We're six chapters in. And if this is your first time reading the Bible, or you haven't picked up a Bible in some time, or you didn't bring your Bible this morning, we have extras under the chairs along the center aisle, or you can just open up your phone's browser and search Mark 6. Colon 31. We'll be reading from the ESV version this morning. And listen, this series and the whole book of Mark, it's about answering the question, who is Jesus? And that's obvious because this is a gospel about the, the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. But more deeply, this question, who is Jesus, is the first question you and I should ask in any scenario. And it's the most important question we could possibly ask for anybody. And that, that question was answered very, very blatantly and clearly in chapter 1, verse 1, when Mark introduces him as Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And what follows in the next 16 chapters could effectively be summarized as an answer to the challenge to prove it. The gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and the following 16 chapters, okay, prove it. In today's text, Jesus proves it in a couple astounding ways. But, but listen, we also learn that proof might just not be what we need. Proof might not be what we need. So, listen closely. Here we go. We're going to read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, beginning in verse 31. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the country, surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. 
And when they had found out, they said, five and, and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. And ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever he heard, they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as, he touched, as, many as touched it were made well. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord... <laughs> we struggle to believe. We have little strength in ourselves to drum up faith within us. Would you help our unbelief? Would you reveal yourself to us this morning? Would you, would you pass by us this morning in your glory and reveal your grace, your love, your compassion, your mercy to us? And would we believe who you say you are, who you have shown yourself to be, to us, would you cast away doubt from our minds? Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning by your Spirit. We pray. Amen. Up in Bozeman, Montana, there's a sovereign grace pastor named Joel Carlson. And Joel Carlson believes Bigfoot is real. And I, I'm, I'm not kidding. He really believes Bigfoot is real. He's, out, he's always out on the, the hunting trails looking for evidence that Bigfoot is real. And the first time I met him, 
I said what virtually everybody says when they find out that he believes Bigfoot is real. I said, we'll prove it. What's your proof, man? And I'm going to tell you today, I'm closer to belief than I ever thought that I was hearing his stories. If you ever get the chance to meet Joel, if he ever comes down here to preach, I would encourage you to sit down with him and listen to his pitch for 30 minutes. And I, you may think there's no way, but you, you might just become a believer too. Now, I tell you that to tell you that when I was a kid wrestling with my belief in God, I would lay in bed at night sometimes and I would think, I would pray, God, if you're, if you're real, make this light turn on. Show me. Or, or, God, if you're really there, let me hear your audible voice just, just so I can know you really are there. Prove it. I'd imagine many of you have prayed similar prayers and and made similar statements. And I'll bet that it wasn't just as a child that you made those statements. You see, it's not just a tendency of children to ask God to prove himself. It's a tendency of people. God, if, if you're there, let me hear your audible voice. Then I'll know. God, I'll I'll believe you're real if if you give me the sign that I want to see, whatever that sign is. God, I'll believe you love me if you get rid of this trial in my life. God, I, I will believe that you really care for me if you give me this desire or if you give give me that thing or that person or that circumstance that I really want, that I've been praying to you for. I'll know that you care if you give that to me. Fill in the blank. What would it be for you? I would much more easily believe God if he blank. But would you? Would you more easily believe God if he proved himself in the way that you're asking him to prove you, to, to prove himself? Would you actually finally believe God and never doubt again? This pair of stories teaches us that if we don't believe God, it's, it's, it's not because he hasn't proven himself. It's not because he hasn't proven himself. Unbelief in God isn't a problem of insufficient evidence. Lack of belief in God is a problem of a broken belief. It's a problem of hardened hearts. We don't need God to prove himself. We need God to change our heart. That is a fundamental truth of the Christian faith. We don't need God to prove himself. We need him to change our hearts. See, in this passage, coming on the heels of Jesus healing the sick and raising the dead and calming this massive storm to protect his his disciples, Jesus then goes and feeds a small city's worth of people with a brown bag lunch. And then after all that, the disciples see Jesus walking on the water and they don't believe. 
and they don't believe, even then. And it's not necessarily that they don't believe that he's God, it's that, that they don't believe that he is for them. They don't believe that, that, that he will provide for them in their moment of need. That They don't believe that he is there, present, to extend his love and compassion toward them. But instead they respond in fear at the sight of Jesus on the sea. And that maps onto our experience as Christians, doesn't it? Sure, we'll believe God is God. But we want him to prove his love for us today. In this situation, in this trial, in this moment of doubt, God, prove to me that you care. Well, friends, these stories and the gospel teach us that he has already provided the proof. He's already proven himself far beyond what our belief would require. So, two, two points as we jump in. There, there are two stories in this passage followed by a summary scene, which is the third major summary that Mark gives in his gospel. But two points to sort of guide the rest of our time today. First, Jesus proves his compassion. Jesus proves his compassion. And secondly, hard hearts demand more proof. And that's a truism. Hard hearts will always demand more proof. So let's jump into this first point. Jesus proves his compassion. Jesus and his disciples, his 12 disciples, were exhausted. They were exhausted. They'd been on this, this evangelistic tour from city to city. They'd crossed the Sea of Galilee now three times, and, and they had hardly had time to eat. At almost every moment over the past several days, crowds have literally been pressing in on them, people touching them, invading their personal space for days on end, not even having time to eat. So Jesus says, hey guys, get back in the boat. We're going to cross to, to, to another, another area, that bank over there, and we're going to go away, just the 13 of us, for some rest. You need to come and be alone with me. And there's an important lesson buried in these seemingly insignificant verses in verses 30 and 31. J commentator James Edwards says, the greater the demands on Jesus' disciples, the greater the need to be alone with him. And the same is true for us as disciples of Christ. The greater the demands of ministry on the disciples of Christ, the greater the need to be alone with Jesus. Do you ever feel tired and spent from ministry? <laughs> a church calendar that's full of small groups and men's and women's meetings and, and parties and celebrations and uh, evangelistic outreaches into our neighborhood and Sunday meetings and you're having people over to, to your home for dinner, exercising hospitality and going into your city, sharing the love and the joy of Jesus and, and you get tired. Well, friends, the more that you pour yourself out for Jesus, the more you need to spend time alone with Jesus. And the, the, the converse is true as well. The more time you spend alone with Jesus, the more fuel you have to serve for the glory of Jesus. 
And Jesus demonstrates this over and over with his disciples, the necessity of going away in solitude, spending time in the presence of God in prayerful meditation on God's word. This is an important principle that's borne out over and over in Jesus' ministry. But, but they go, and they go a distance. So they, 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 they go on the boat to another shore, and then they go probably a, a decent ways inland. So they're really trying to get remote, but there's this crowd that's been following them. And they see them, and they go, I think I know where he's going. And so they, they run from towns and cities, and, and they, they go to where they, they're about to land on the shore. And then when Jesus gets there with his disciples, the crowd is there waiting for them. Now look at, look at verse 34. This is where this whole story really hinges. Look at, look at verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw the great crowd. <laughs> and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. You incessant people, leave us alone for two minutes, is what you would expect him to say. But he didn't. I mean, they literally had not had time to eat a meal. And they try to go away alone, and there they are. And yet our Savior responds not with impatience, not with annoyance, but with compassion. This is Jesus. This is the Christ, the Son of God. He had compassion on them because he saw them for what they were. They were like sheep. And if you know anything about sheep, sheep need leadership. And sheep can only really exist in a healthy way in the midst of the flock. And apart from the leadership of a shepherd, they, they all wander off. They all go their own way. They cannot find food or water on their own apart from being led to it. They walk into dangers. They literally walk themselves into death. And Jesus sees this crowd of people. And he says, these are people straying, wandering their own way, trying to find hope and purpose and meaning in life, but looking in all the wrong places. He had compassion on them. Verse 34, Mark chapter 6, verse 34 is instructive for how we view our neighbors. Because Jesus, if we're to follow in his, in his example, would not want us to be inconvenienced by our unbelieving neighbors, to be repulsed by our unbelieving neighbors, but to move toward them in compassion and love. Now, what happens next is a story you probably know really well. Verse 44 says that there are 5,000 men, and the parallel account in Matthew, and this is actually the only miracle that's, in, that's uh, included in all four Gospels, the only one. And Matthew's parallel account says that there are 5,000 men, not including the women and children. So this crowd could be anywhere from 7,000 to 20,000 people. This is a massive 
crowd that has just grown and grown and grown over time. And listen, John 6 says that this crowd was feisty. This, this region was a really politically active region, and, and these Jews were looking for a Messiah that would, that would lead them as their king and lead them to overthrow the Roman occupation. They were looking to Jesus as this potential militaristic leader. And so in John's account, in John 6, of the feeding of the 5,000, it ends with them literally trying to force him to become their king. So this crowd is feisty. And so the disciples look out on this crowd, and Jesus is teaching, has been teaching probably for hours at this point, and the sun's going down, and they're remote, far away from any city or town. And the disciples go, oh dear. One, we haven't eaten. We're extremely hungry. But neither have they. And, and, and at best, they're thinking, well, gosh, it's not good for anybody to go several meals without food. We, we should send them away to go get food. At worst, they're, they're thinking, these people are about to get hangry. This could, this could really erupt and get, get messy and dangerous. And so they go, they go to Jesus, and, and they say in, in verse 36, hey, Jesus, just disperse this crowd so they can get something to eat, okay? That, that would be the, the wise and logical thing to do. And Jesus says in verse 37, no, you give them something to eat. <laughs> and so they do the math, and they go, Jesus, it would cost about, in our modern terms, $50,000, 200 denarii, that's about two-thirds of an annual paycheck. Says Jesus, do, should we go spend $50,000 to feed these several thousand people? And, and it's hard to tell, but, but Mark is probably capturing some sarcasm in their voice because the disciples have developed a habit of responding to, to Jesus really calls for faith to them with, with sarcasm and an absence of faith. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Go, go and see how many loaves of bread you can find. As commentator James Edwards says, the disciples focus on what they lack. Jesus focuses on what they possess. He says, no, what do we have? You're asking all the wrong questions. And they come back with five loaves and a loaf of bread was like a dinner roll. It's like this big, three, four inches across. It's a little loaf of bread and two tiny salted fish. This is a snack. This is a brown bag lunch. Again, Edwards says of this, God can multiply even the smallest gifts if they are made available to him. So they bring these five loaves. Now look at verses 39 through 44. Here's the drama. We've said this in multiple sermons prior to this. Look for the drama in these Gospels. Where's the drama? Here's the drama, verses 39 through 44. He commands them to sit down in groups, seemingly insignificant. But he commands them to sit down in groups, just like Moses commanded the Israelites to sit down in groups in the wilderness when they lacked food. And Moses was leading them to look to the Lord for provision. And what did the Lord do? He provided manna from heaven, miraculous food to provide for their hunger, every last one of them. 
Mark doesn't waste a single detail in his gospel. None of this is random. None of this is random. Jesus is proving something here. Then, verse 41. Look down at verse 41. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Listen, again, not a wasted detail. Almost the exact same wording of Mark chapter 14, verse 22, when Jesus broke bread at the Last Supper and lifted his eyes to heaven and gave the bread to his disciples. When he told these same disciples that he was about to provide his own body and blood for them for the satisfaction of their very souls. And the disciples took the bread from him on this hillside and distributed it to thousands. And look at verses 42 and 43. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. The whole crowd and the disciples, those 12 baskets, are intended to represent Jesus' complete and overflowing provision for his disciples. Again, James Edwards says, the bread of Jesus satisfies because it is an expression of his compassion. That's what's happening here. The bread of Jesus satisfies because it is an expression of the compassion mentioned in verse 34. And it is given in such measure that there is a basket of leftovers for each disciple. So abundant is Jesus' compassion and provision for these people. What satisfied was the grace that flowed from Jesus himself. It's not about the loaves. It's not about the fish. It's about the person of Jesus Christ and what he's demonstrating about his character. God compassionately provided for Israel in the wilderness, and Jesus proves that once again, he has the power of God and that he compassionately provides, just as his father did for his people. And he points forward in this very act to the cross, the ultimate expression of his compassion. This is remarkable. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Because it's easy to miss this. Now this, this scene moves quickly. And this is how Mark writes. He moves things along. So that, that takes us to the second point. Hard hearts want more proof. And again, you look at the language of, of how this how this progresses, they were all satisfied. And then verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. So so everybody's satisfied and goes, hey guys, go, get out of here. John 6 tells us that after the miracle, the, the, the crowd tried to take him by force and make him their king, right? So Jesus quickly, and the word in the Greek here, it, it, it intends force. He's saying, guys, get 
out of here because he doesn't, he doesn't want them to get swept up in the fervor. So he sends them away so that he can dismiss the crowd and disperse them peacefully, which he does. And then verse 46, he, he does what he originally intended to do. He gets alone and he prays up on, up on the mountainside. So the disciples are out on the sea and he's up on the mountain praying. And as he's praying, the, the wind is whipping his hair and his robes and it's howling around him. And he sees the boat. He looks down from the mountainside. He sees this tiny boat in the distance on the Sea of Galilee. And it has not gone very far. Much less far than it should have by that point because, because verse 48 says that they were making painful headway. The, the Greek in verse 48 literally means they were rowing torturously. Torturously. And so Jesus, and get this, with the same compassion he had on the crowds, with the very same compassion, he descends the mountain and he goes to them and he steps off of the shore and walks to them. Now, mind you, some scholars have tried to explain this miracle away by saying that Jesus walked on a sandbar or, or, or something. But Mark, Mark goes to pains here to, to demonstrate that that's not the case. Some have said that, that he was walking along the shore and they were kind of following the, 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 shore, the shoreline closely. But no, this was, they'd been making their way across the Sea of Galilee. And it says here in verse 48 that he came to them at the fourth hour of the of the fourth watch of the night, which is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They've been rowing all night. They're in the middle of the sea. They're not close to shore. They're in dire straits. They're barely getting where they need to go, and they're probably a couple miles off the shore. Further, the Sea of Galilee is a basin with a pretty consistent sea floor. Now, it's not a crazy deep sea, but its average depth is 84 feet, and its maximum depth is 141 feet, and they're out in the middle. So let's just say, at minimum, Jesus is walking with 84 feet of liquid water underneath him on the waves. The disciples see him, and they freak out. Now, I... I <laughs> I'm under no illusion that I would react any differently. So, I, I, we should always be careful <laughs> judging the characters in Scripture because we're just like them. But, but they think he's a ghost. And they see Jesus. They see him and they expect the worst. And this, is what you, this is what we should see here. That just like you and I, when we see anything in our lives and expect the worst. We expect that God isn't going to care for us in this, in this moment, that he's not going to extend his love toward us. He's not going to give us what we need. And so we see trouble coming and we go, oh dear, it's all over. This is going to end terribly. I see Jesus walking on the water and they expect the worst. Now in contrast to their freak out, I want you to notice two things. Okay, first, verse 48. And, and this is so curious, isn't it? Notice at the end of Verse 48, 
he meant to pass by them. Isn't that interesting? What, what does that mean? Is he just kind of walking out on the Sea of Galilee and he intended to sort of wave to him and say, hey guys, and keep on going to the shore, leaving them behind him? It's what it seems to suggest, but no. Mark is saying something theological and historical in this moment. In the Old Testament, Yahweh, God, passed by Moses in Exodus 33 to reveal his character to Moses. He says, Moses, let me show you who I am. And he allowed his glory to pass by him. In 1 Kings 19, he did the same thing with Elijah. He passed by Elijah with his glory, revealing who he is and the quality and nature of his character to Elijah. Jesus meant to pass by them, which means he meant to, in that moment, reveal himself to them. And who is it that he intended to reveal? What is it about himself that he intended to reveal? Well, second thing to notice here is verse 50. Jesus literally says that the literal translation of, of verse 50 is, have courage. What, what you see as, take heart, it is I. The literal translation of that is, have courage, I am. Have courage, I am. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, back in the book of Exodus again, Moses is preparing to go back into Egypt from Midian because God has told him to, to go and deliver his people Israel. And Moses goes, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. And here Jesus is saying, I intended to pass by you, to reveal to you who I am. And in the face of your fear, take courage, because I am. Now take that, all of that, in the context of Jesus' compassion in verse 34. Jesus is intentionally revealing that he is the God of Israel come to compassionately care for and provide for them in their distress. That's what he's doing as he's walking on the water. This is no circus sideshow. He's revealing the compassionate character of God in himself to them. And they missed it. And they missed it. And that's precisely what Mark means in verse 52 when he says, for they did not understand the loaves. They didn't understand that the feeding of the 5,000 was Jesus proving that to them who he was. He, he performed that miracle to teach them of his compassion for them. He performed that miracle to teach them of his compassion for them. One commentator says, It is strange that the disciples did not seem to have learned anything from this miracle. 
This was not because they were particularly stupid and unresponsive. It was because they were just like us. Because like us, they didn't see the proof. It was right before their eyes. You see, lack of evidence was not their problem. Their fear and unbelief was not because they had not seen enough of the revelation of Jesus' compassion for them. That was not their problem. Friend, if, if, if you're asking God to prove his love to you, if you're asking him to prove, prove his, his, his future provision for you, if you're asking God to prove that he cares for you, the problem isn't that he hasn't proven himself enough. The burden is not on him to prove himself. If you're in that boat, then the, the paraphrase of verse 52 for you is, and listen closely here, listen very closely, look at verse 52, what this says to us as people on this side of the cross. If you are struggling with, with unbelief and you're asking God to prove himself, for you did not understand about the cross. For your heart was hardened. For you did not understand about the cross, but your heart was hardened. The provision of the food for the crowd, it foreshadowed Jesus' provision of himself for sinners pointing forward to his provision, his satisfaction of sinners, the satisfaction of God's wrath for sin for sinners in himself. And, and, and the Apostle Paul famously says in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? In other words, if you need proof of God's love and provision and care, God did not spare his own son to extend his compassion toward you. There it is, the proof. The cross is all the proof you need because you will not find a greater proof. You will not find a higher proof. You will not find a more comprehensible proof. You will not find a more complete and eternal proof than the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the grandest expression of God's love for you that you will ever find in your life. And it is the most wonderful expression of his love you could ever hope to find. Because in the cross, God provided for your greatest need by giving his greatest treasure, his son. And if he gave his greatest treasure, as Paul says, how will he not also with him graciously give you all other things? The burden of proof is not on him. So friend, is your heart hard toward belief in God's compassionate care for I'm going to ask you that this morning. Is your heart hard in any way toward belief in God's compassionate care for you? Do you doubt he cares for you? Are you asking him to prove his care for you? James Edwards, 
final quote from Mr. Edwards, but he accurately, helpfully, and uncomfortably points out that discipleship is more endangered by lack of faith and hardness of heart than the external dangers that we think are a threat to us. Let me say that again. Discipleship is more endangered by lack of faith and hardness of heart than the external dangers we think are a threat to us. You don't need more proof. You need a changed heart. And, and if that's you, I, I, know, I know this is a tender realization. So I want to be, I want to be sensitive, I want to be compassionate. I know this is a tender admission to deal with in your own heart. So to close, I have two things I believe the Lord would have you to know. And these are important. Take these truths with you. First, hardness of heart is not only a problem for non-Christians. It's not only a problem that non-Christians have. Look down at the text one last time. Verse 33 Verse 33, the crowd recognized him. And then verses 53 through 56, this, this summary. As soon as they hit land, the people, verse 54, they what? They recognized him. In other words, this crowd, while they, there may have been some who genuinely believed, there were many, many at the very least, who did not Yet they all recognized in Jesus what the disciples failed to recognize. And the disciples were, were his closest followers. Yet they still failed to recognize what these, these thousands of people did recognize. And what they did recognize, what this crowd did recognize, was that if they came to Jesus, they could expect compassion. They could expect compassion. And sometimes... Listen, Christians can have saving faith yet fail to see in God what is plain to others. It's important to know that. It's important to know that. It doesn't mean that you've lost your salvation if you still have residual hardness in your heart. But it does, need that you, it does mean that you need God to change your heart. It, it does mean that it's not okay to say that way. And you carry on in hardness of your heart. You carry on demanding that God prove himself to you, putting the burden on him rather than the burden on us to believe who he has very sufficiently proved himself to be. So the second thing to notice is that the cross is also the answer to hardness of heart. The cross is the proof but when you fail to believe the proof of God's love for you, which is entirely sufficient, the cross is also the answer, the solution to the residual hardness of heart that's within you. Ezekiel 36, 26. Again, I'll say that again. Ezekiel 36, 26. Go and write that on your bathroom mirror and look at it in the morning. This, this is a promise this is an Old Testament promise of the coming new covenant. And the prophet Ezekiel, speaking as a mouthpiece of God, describes what this new covenant 
will be like. And he says in Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart (laughs) and a new spirit I will put within you. And I, get this, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And Jesus comes, as the author of Hebrews says, instituting a better and a new covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of that new covenant. It is through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension that that new covenant is put into place. It is through his work on the cross that we're given new hearts, that our hearts of stone are softened into hearts of flesh. So, my friend, if, if your heart is hardened toward belief that God is for you, get alone with Jesus. Go and spend time alone with Jesus. Get, get close enough to the fire of the cross that the sparks fall on your heart and set your heart aflame with belief in his love for you. If you stand at too far a distance from the cross, you cannot be affected by the fire of the cross. We heard this at our retreat a few weeks ago from John Payne, and this is a reminder of it now. If you hope to have any effect on the hardness of heart within you, that is the only answer. Because you don't need more proof. (laughs) Even if God did prove himself the way that you're asking him to or demanding him to, it would just be the next situation that you ask him again. What you need is for him to change your heart. And through Christ, he graciously will. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that that the gospel is a message of grace. That we can hear the bad news that the reason that we don't believe is because our hearts are hard, because we have failed to see what you have so evidently and abundantly shown us. But you've also provided the solution to the hardness of heart. You have deigned to give grace to us in our unbelief. So we ask humbly now, would you help our unbelief? Lord, I pray for anybody this morning whose heart is positioned to ask you to prove yourself to them in order that they would believe that you actually care for them. Would you turn their eyes to the cross? Would you draw them near to the cross of Christ? Would you assure them of your love through the cross of Christ? And send them forth in joy and assurance of your love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.